Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue. I am the Director of Western Grower Center for Innovation and Technology, and I'm co-host with my very good friend, Candace Wilson. And we are back for another, uh, and I think you'll find a very interesting episode of Voices of the Valley. Candace, welcome. Great to see you. Nice to see you too. We're uh, getting ready to start a rainy new year. Oh my gosh, so much rain. It has not stopped raining in Northern California, and I'm delighted. Well, I'm told we do not have the latitude of uh, breaking a news flash at Voices of the Valley that the drought's over. Appar- apparently, this needs to happen for a couple more years. <laughs> but, uh, California well, will screw it up somehow, and we'll <laughs> declare it over here in the next couple days. There you go. Anyway, I am uh, delighted to introduce to our audience uh, Simon Pearson, who is the founding director of the Lincoln Institute of Agri-Food Technology, which happens to be in the United Kingdom. So uh, we're talking across the pond today. Simon, welcome. Hi. Yeah, I think it's good evening my side. I think it's good morning your side, isn't it? I think so. Well, we're it's it's new. It's high noon. So. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that that drink you were talking about earlier, we don't get to have them yet. So, <laughs> and hopefully our conversation won't drive you to drink. So anyway, terrific to have you join us. Uh, we're both really excited about it, and uh, let's just kind of jump in with the basics. Uh, introduce yourself, you know, because you really have a very interesting background. So talk a little bit about your background and then bring us to the present uh, of what you're up to at the, at the Lincoln Institute. Yeah, so thanks. So I'm Professor of Food Technology at Lincoln in the UK. So we're, we're just north of the city of Lincoln, which is on the East Coast. I'm from a farming background. My father was a uh, brassica grower, so broccoli, cauliflowers, all those sorts of things. So very familiar to what you've got over there, Dennis. So um, then I, uh, I went to university. I was sort of an agricultural engineer and uh, did PhD, became a lecturer at university. And I worked for Marks and Spencer, which is a big retailer in the UK in supply chains. So it's all the sort of the trading side of it. And then uh, I had an epiphany and then I went to be a farmer in Lincolnshire, uh, which is a big agri-county of uh, the UK. And I did that for um, about eight years. And then uh, so I've done about 15 years in industry, Marks and Spencer in farming. And then I decided to go back into academia and I uh, founded uh, Institute, which is LIAT in the UK. So we, we specialize in robotics, AI, and sort of ag tech applications, mainly for the produce industry. Well, you've really been involved, you know, the ag tech movement, uh, I mean, if you put a time span around, you know, let's say a decade plus, so you've really been there since the beginning, uh, but always involved with robotics and uh, how, do, how do you address some of these issues of, you know, there's some labor challenges. And, and in fact, uh, the UK in particular has, uh, I mean, really has some extreme labor issues uh, and necessity is certainly the mother of invention, but you jumped right into the whole automation space right yeah. away. Yeah, I, th- I think UK maybe because of Brexit and COVID and all those. We, we're sort of we've been the canary in the coal mine for I think that a lot of the global problems in the produce industry, and uh, with Brexit particularly, the industry over here we had sixty three thousand seasonal migrant workers, mainly from the EU, Eastern Europe particularly, picking harvesting produce. Uh, coming over every year, doing great jobs, you know, do, working really hard. And then because of politics, that numbers then suddenly declined. And then you've got COVID, that's declined again. Then Ukraine, there's all the Ukrainian workers in the UK. So all the men particularly gone back. And it, it's just one thing after another. It's extraordinary. You can make it up, really. 
And the reality is that the industry is under an enormous pressure. So we're talking lots of crop losses, lots of waste, all sorts of labour gaps, etc. So what do you do about it? Well, it's a really hard problem. So the government's thrown some policy at it, and so they've licensed, I think, now 45,000 workers to come in the UK for harvesting, but still a deficit from the 63,000 we used to have. And so we've got to automate. And we've got to automate as quickly as possible. Of course, we're trying to automate really difficult jobs, you know, cognitive jobs, which need a lot of human cognitive skills, hand-eye coordination, perception, speed. That's really hard. That's the top end of hard of robotics. But the government, fortunately, in the UK, I think because of the Brexit things, thrown quite a lot of research funding at it. So we've had a bit of a lead on it, but it's really difficult. It's not a sort of thing where you can go out, get a load of engineers, build a machine. It's difficult. It's complex digital technology right at the cutting edge. And so we're trying to try and drive as hard as we can. And we're driving as hard as we can because the industry is threatened and we're trying to respond to what they need. I'm curious, as you have been working with different technology companies, which technologies are further along than where you think we've made the most progress? And on the flip side of that, which segments where we really need to spend more focus and kind of need to get caught up? Yeah, we did it a bit uh, differently. We almost reversed it a bit and tried to moonshot it a bit. And we actually went for the what we felt was one of the really hardest problems. And just to pick a strawberry for robotics is really hard because you've got to have state-of-the-art vision systems. You've got to be able to detect the fruit. You've got to tell when it's ripe. You've got to move, pick it really without bruising it because it's really soft. Then when you picked it, of course, you've got the next problem is what do you then do with it? You've got to then start to move it and then you need an autonomous vehicle. So you've got the top end of complete, you've got the perception, you've got the, the handling, and then you've got all the autonomy and you've only got to look at autonomous cars and know how difficult that is. So we started at the hard problem, a bit like a moonshot. And then as we actually then did that work, we sort of went, oh, hang on a minute. There's a few low lying opportunities here, commercialization opportunities. And the first one we looked at was using robots, the autonomy that we developed in the robots, to apply UV lights on crops. So we've done a big farm in the UK this year with a company called Saga Robotics, one of the spin-outs we've been working with. They have 35 hectares of soft root treated with UVC on strawberries, and that completely cured powdery mildew. Quite amazing. So it's done once, so it needs a bit more robustness just to prove that it worked. But it looks really promising. And it wasn't the UVC that was the innovation, it was the autonomy. And we did, I think, 13,000 kilometres in a year to an accuracy of five centimetres. And that's the same distance from the UK to New York and back to five. So really good first application would cure the disease. Then we sort of thought, oh, hang on a minute, if we've got a vehicle, we can start to do fruit counting and crop forecasting. So we now, we've now got companies and spin-out companies are working with to do the forecasting bit, which for supply chain management, it's absolutely critical. Then we've got other companies starting to now think about the picking side. So as we've gone on, we found these layer of commercialization opportunities, which have spun out. But it's only spun out because we did this moonshot approach where we, let's really think of something really hard. And as we do something hard, we're going to throw out some interesting solutions. And I can tell you, we honestly didn't think about all the low line stuff when we started off. We thought, we'll go pick some strawberries. How hard's that? Actually, it's really hard. <laughs> so. Well, I'm intrigued by your description of the various functions each lead to their own company. And I know, uh, you know, we've been working on strawberries domestically a decade plus. And, you know, you have some companies that feel they're close. But I'm just thinking out loud, you would probably have an observation on this. Do you have to approach it as 
functional specific as you did rather than a general we just want to pick strawberries and that'll pick up all the elements i mean it's interesting to hear each function generated its own it, it, yeah. its own set of companies yeah and i guess the thing for us we, we came in from a you know we're, we're a bunch of academics and so what my team were really looking for was the a hard problems and that's intuitive from for academics i think since we've done that we tried to get a bit smarter and go well what are the commercial problems and so we went in with the AR problems and thought, oh, that is really very hard. And then we thought, well, actually, we've got to solve some commercial problems on this way. So we backed up a little bit. And now we're really focusing on the commercial problems, creating spin-outs, uh, collaboration, working with other people. And I think the other thing we've shown is that these are big problems. These are big engineering problems on a global scale. These are not something which a small lab somewhere can go solve. This needs big collaboration, international collaboration. So it's not just a tech problem. It's not just a question of finding a load of very bright people who can solve a problem. You need big scale. You need to do it across borders. You need to think about not just the tech, but also the infrastructure that you're going to put in and need on farms. You need to think about skills, the training, the people. So there's a whole range of you know, think of it as it's like a big recipe. You've got to get every bit of that recipe right. And if you get it right, it's absolutely wonderful. And it'll go, go, go if you get it wrong, it's horrible. Nothing will work. So you've got to think about every bit of it. And that's what we found on the way. But we only really found that by doing something really hard because we thought, well, why isn't this working? And then you've got to get more problems. You've got to solve them. What is the progress that you've seen over the years and the role that you you guys have played specifically in working across borders and bringing everybody who has, you know, an interest in this subject together? I think there's three things we're probably really proud of. The biggest thing is probably autonomy. So we work with Norwegian company Saga Robotics, which is a Norwegian spin-out from Norwegian University, and they created a home also at Lincoln. And they've created a really fantastic autonomy stack. So that's working really well. Then we've had some really bright people. And I think as an academic, it's lovely to see how people develop. And, you know, part of your product is the research output. Part of your product is actually the people that come through. So we've had some great PhD students who've just done some amazing things. And I just wish I was young, 23 years old, and just <laughs> I'm starting out because I do things very differently. And I'm very, very envious of these young people who do these amazing things. So the, the AI piece for crop forecasting has been phenomenal. So that's, that's why we've got cameras in a farm, can do the can image a strawberry but not only that we can forecast we can measure its weight we can actually detect how old it is from a, from an image and then you can do the forecasting so i'm quite proud of that and then i think the other thing is the the fruit picking piece so we've done some quite nice work with strawberries and then we got that at cop 26 and uh with the uh, secretary general of the united nation came to look at it so it's not very often that you get to say to your mates, well, do you know what? Secretary General of the United Nations today came up and look at a robot strawberry picker. So there's been some really nice things on the way as well, from a personal sort of mode. So. Well, you know, both Candace and I are really intrigued by this whole AI conversation because is it fair to ask, has AI really landed in, you know, now we look at the world from a specialty crop lens, you know, Candace with her background, uh, you know, kind of the big ag picture, I, you know, I'm fruits, vegetables and, and nuts, but has AI, you know, it sounds like it, it's coming. And uh, when that happens, that really kind of unleashes things. But uh, for instance, in our neck of the woods, strawberries, while we like them a lot, it's still a specialty crop. And we always kind of run into that scale issue, uh, you know, that, you know, we're not the Midwest, it's not soy, it's not wheat. So, I mean, I'm a big believer in what you said, that unless you organize specialty crops globally, it's not happening because you don't get the economics right and the acceleration. But is getting people to understand the AI piece the key to everyone understanding? You're really going to have to work together across borders, et cetera. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of points there. So it's especially crops where we've started. That's really where the fastest ROI is for a lot of the work that we do. So we've gone on very complex things. You've got a lot of people, and it's not a question of replacing people. Well, certainly in the UK, those people don't want to do this work. They don't exist. So it's trying to build machines that, that uh, do work where people don't exist. That's the key thing here. And that's where the ROI is. So specialty crops have been very, very important for robotics because that's where the investment's been and that's where the ROI's been. Now, with robotics, it's a really interesting thing because all a robot is is a lump of hardware. The really clever bit is the AI, which is controlling them. So think of a robot really as a physical piece of AI. And then that's the best way to think of it. So robotics is taking all that AI, exploiting that AI. So the ability to detect an image, a strawberry from an image, is an AI application. The ability to uh, navigate, and we're doing navigation without GPS, that's using AI. So it's using a camera to actually say, this camera's saying, well, actually, I think there's a post over there, and my map says there is a post over there, therefore I know I'm here. So that's AI. So all this autonomy is AI-driven. So robotics is the first in for AI. But then when you go to big farms, it's really interesting because AI has a great ability to take all this data, vast amounts of data, and then make sense of it, but vast amounts of data that the individual farmer is very unlikely ever to be able to process. And that's where AI is powerful. And then it's then distilling that information into real-time decision support. So and that will be, well, actually, do you know what? I think there's a problem with that crop over there. I think it's got botrytis. Oh, hang on a minute. It might not have botrytis. It might have a mildew. Uh, if you've got a mildew, you'd better check that thing really quick because you're in trouble if you don't. If it's botrytis, this is the sort of thing. So it's just aiding that decision-making process, flagging these things up, and whether you're a specialty crop or big ag, so you can make decisions quick, absorbing lots more data than you possibly can, and making those decisions very effective. And then as you then go on, the the idea is then is that the AI then learns from your decisions, and that the AI is capable enough to say, well, actually, I can learn from the sensors, I can learn from the cameras, but the big thing, which is the really interesting thing, where we need to get to next is I can learn from the behaviour of the farmers. And then that will then help the decision-making. So what you really want in this situation is where you've got many hundreds of farmers are making decisions and the AI is going, well, do you know what? Those guys generally are doing this and therefore I think we should do this. The AI will never be perfect, but if it can accelerate your decision-making process and just rule out a number of the variables, you're in a better position to make a quick decision. And it's not just speed of decisions. As a farm gets bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger, with fewer and fewer farmers which is really what you've got in many big farms, you need to make them quick, but you need to make fewer decisions because the farmer hasn't got the mental capacity, in no respect, at scale to make all those decisions effectively. And that's where AI is going to come in. So it will be speedy decisions, more informed decisions, but fewer and more effective decisions. And hopefully the AI will then will go to the bigger decisions. And, and you know, So that's where it's going to go. How quickly that's going to go it's really hard to predict, but this technology is phenomenally fast. I mean, I, you know, you think of a mobile phone, an iPhone, you know, we've not had those things for very long. And the amount of tech in them is just extraordinary. Now, that's around the investment and things like that. But actually, you know, the world agri-food industry is 8% of the global economy. So, you know, there's opportunity in that space, not just 8% of the global economy, but 70% of water use, massive greenhouse gas emissions, 36% or whatever. So, da 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 so it's the space where we should see lots of investments get this tech applied. I'm curious. You said the next phase is understanding the farmer's decision, what the grower does. How do you start to actually bridge that? How do you teach 
the com- the machine, the computer to do that. You create a scenario. I'm making this up. I'm just trying to give you an example of a question. You create a scenario and then start to build in the answers, like the rationale for why a farmer does what he does. Yeah. So you you do it two ways. And uh, the one is just a very black box way. And you take the decisions that thousands of farmers have made, which is historical. And you're going to say, well, actually, when that decision was made, in general, and it'll, there'll be a lot of variance because farmers will make slightly different In general, farmers made that decision. And then the system's going to learn from those thousands of behaviours. That's the hard way of doing it. The easiest way to do it is say, well, well, actually, the general rules from prior science might be that we know from prior science and prior management theory that farmers typically make these behaviours. And that's based on the old knowledge. And what you then do is then you build that old knowledge into your machine learning models and then you can then create, you can learn that behavior and you've got a more informed, you've got a constrained decision that you can make. Um, so there's several ways of doing it. And all of them are sort of just, you know, they're all fair game, basically. It's early days and there isn't a consensus on the best route yet. So question on the AI. I mean, we've talked about automation, you know, typically I've understood that to be a function. You know, you have the data library, so you can tell the difference yeah. between plant and weed, that type of thing. What are the capabilities of the data libraries in terms of AI? Can the same library also, hey, there's a pest uh, infestation, there is a disease? Because it sure seems like when that begins to happen, it really begins to bring everything together on the farm. Yeah. And that's where the value is. That, you know, that What you have to do is then the way you do it, you'll take a, a series of images of a feature you want to recognize. And then you've got to then train those images. And usually it's a manual process where, where a person will go, well, actually, that is an aphid, that is a, a white fly, that is a, a mite or, or whatever. And then you need thousands of images which are similar. And then somebody's going to then label all those images. You'll then put that into a deep learning algorithm. That algorithm's going to then sort of go, well, do you know what? When I see that pattern on an image, I know it is an aphid because... I've seen thousands of images that it's uh, been trained on. So that's the generic way. There are other ways of doing it. You can speed up that process with fewer images, you can use synthetic data and all sorts of things. But basically, it's thousands of images going into a big deep learning algorithm, which will then say, well, actually, when I see that pattern of pixels, that's representative of, of an aphid. And that's very expensive and it's quite slow because you, generally you've got a lot of human interventions to create that training data set. Once you've got that data set, you're, you're away and then relatively easy then to augment it. So you might say, well, OK, I, I want to detect green aphids, uh, but I know I've got a problem with red aphids. So you'll take your green aphid data set and then it's easy then to train it for other colour or, or whatever. So once you've got that core, you can build on it. And we're getting to the stage where we're getting that core and we're getting good image data sets now for vegetables, broccolis, things like that. Good image data sets for fruits, strawberries, apples. Uh, all those sorts of things. And those data sets, some of those data sets are private, but they're becoming more and more open. And uh, I think academia particularly is trying to, and certainly Western growers got a brilliant idea in terms of the shared um, autonomy stack concept, where we're starting to share this data to accelerate everything because it's very expensive. If you're a small startup, you don't want to spend a fortune just you know, annotating lots of video with lots of aphids on it. You want to be doing the next bit on. You want to be doing the interpretation how a farmer can use it how it can be exploited and those sorts of things so those data sets got great value one additional question before i like candace jump in so taking everything you said i want i want to put you on the spot in a good way 
you know, all of this leads to, though I find it interesting, downloading the farmer. You know, I heard it, for, well, the same when we attended the, the Gowan function and you met together, you know, when Carl Casale talked about knowledge transfer, normally you think about, okay, how do the people learn from whatever the impact of the technology is? You're kind of uh, reversing course there. Like, okay, how do, how do the machines uh, download from humans and, and so, or the farmers themselves? And that kind of speaks to your recent appearance at the Oxford Union and that discussion. So talk a little bit about that appearance and kind of the history of that club, because, uh, you know, it sounds like, you know, you were very self-deprecating the old WC fields. I'm not sure I'd want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. I mean, you were hanging out with some pretty, uh, I mean, there's a lot of history in that. And then the topic was terrific. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was, I was asked to do a debate uh, it was last week, actually, at, at the Oxford Union, part of the University of Oxford. And uh, it's, it's a famous debating society where they raise contentious issues or topical issues. And it's been going on, I think, since 1820. So they've had, I think Nixon was there. That's where he apologised for Watergate. They've had Carter there, Clinton there, Desmond Tutu, Mother Teresa, George Foreman, of course. And so a range of... Of course, of, I knew that list would get to... Get to George. <laughs> and so, so, so a range of really interesting people through history and uh, what you get invited and uh, what we had a debate last week and the, the motion of the debate was, and you have to defend a, a motion. And I didn't choose the motion, by the way, but it was, this house believes that humans will not be needed on farms in a generation. So I had to, I had to defend that. And then... Two people then defend it, two people oppose it, and then they open it to the floor and basically there's about 450 farmers in the room. And I was trying to defend the notion that 450 farmers might become extinct. Uh, and, and so given that all the all the voters were humans, I lost. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, you, you're given something which you have to, um, you might not necessarily agree with, but you've got to try and do your you're a politician, Dennis, so you know what it's like. <laughs> well, I, I, I will say this. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you lost, but I guess the follow-up is, do you think you should have? <laughs> well, uh, what, what do you think? Uh, you know, like you said, I mean, automation in many instances is simply replacing people who aren't there to begin with. Yeah, it, it is in this one, and it's serious, actually. And um, and certainly for the farming, and certainly in the UK, it's very, very serious. And these people aren't there and I, th- I think the problem is though it's such a broad question and but if you're a dairy farmer or if you're a sheep farmer or a beef farmer you're going to need people to do stuff and you might have a small farm and you know and that's that's your life and you're going to keep farming that you know that that's it and if you're a big ag farmer you, you don't need many people on farms you've got massive combines big equipment very automated already so really aren't that many people where are the people? Where's the big challenge? Actually, a lot of it is in uh, it's in produce. Well, you've got those really complex cognitive tasks. And that's really what we're talking about and driving at. So we're not talking about the fact that there won't be people on farm. There will be. There absolutely will be. And those people are going to be making really complex decisions and, and they're going to be taking in data that no AI can ever learn. It might be about a field or a paddock somewhere which has got a particular wet, damp spot, which is a problem. It's very difficult for, for that. It's, people will always be needed in farming there's no doubt about it but also innovation is going to come and we need innovation in areas where we don't have people and that's particularly around produce crops and actually it's really very hard to do because you're doing these cognitive uh, skills and so uh, the debate was really interesting and it went around two themes and it was an interesting debate one theme was around technology automation the second theme which the other side took which actually i do subscribe to was about the roles of farms and farmers particularly in rural communities, 
they are the heart and the soul of the community. We don't want to lose those communities. And that's the emotional side of it won the debate. And, I, you know, quite frankly, if, I was, if, if I'd be very subjective, I'd be very subjective there to their arguments if I wasn't told to, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that certainly must have been uh, an exciting opportunity for you to uh, be part of yeah, that club, the, you know, ranging from Churchill to George Foreman. Yeah, it's amazing. The president of the union said, he said, uh, don't worry, Simon, if you lose, and the way they do it, they vote. When they go out the door, they, they go through a lobby which says aye or a lobby which says nay. And so the president of the union said, don't, don't worry, Simon, if you've done badly, uh, because they're all leaving and going to the pub, a lot of them will actually go through the other lobby because there's nobody <laughs> going through that lobby. And, <laughs> and so the worst you'll get is 25%. He said, if you get less than 25%, that's really bad because they're actually queuing to delay pub time to vote against you. So, <laughs> yeah, so got about 25%. <laughs> well, good inside baseball for uh, for the Oxford Union Club. Candice? Yeah. I'm just curious. You talked about your PhD students kind of circling back around to some of that. What are you seeing? We often talk about the next generation of ag workers. I'm curious just... If you were to look at your programs from 10 years ago, how have the students, what kind of new interests and skills have they shown? How have the universities, you know, adopted or evolved their programs to really focus on some of the the needs of the future? So we're quite lucky. We've had a number of PhDs. We work with University of Cambridge very closely, as Dennis knows. And so that's been quite a good attractor for people to come in to do PhDs in ag. First time Cambridge really got involved in in ag and it's around robotics. Our traditional programmes haven't been, you know, they've been in decline. And the reason they've been in decline is a lot of the people coming have been from rural communities, farming communities. The number of numbers have been dropping and, and then there's been all sorts of issues around food and uh, all those sorts of things but actually the the good thing about robotics and digital is actually reverse that trend but it's just brought in a pure new set of people in and that's people who are digitally inspired who want to work in robotics or advanced tech and they've all, and they're coming and we've not had a problem recruiting students and those people are coming in and, and i think that the reason they're coming in is that they've all got an affinity with food they get it they've got a bit of an affinity with farming but they're coming in because they want to do the robotics and the digital bit and the tech bit and so it's that tech anchor that they've locked on and they're coming in and i think that's terrific so we're starting to get a new generation of people in and that's good for refreshing the community more diversity wider range of people fantastic new, and, new uh, perspectives and ideas to approach the problem Exactly. But they're all very socially conscious, which is terrific. So they're all worried about impacts of water on ag. They're all interested about greenhouse gases, all interested about food and health and all those sort of things. So they understand the really big questions and they know that if they're coming to ag and they do robotics, they can have an impact on society, which is really positive. So that's been our selling point. And I say it's worked. I think it's brilliant. And they're terrific people to work with. They're just full of energy, full of vim, full of (laughs) just want to change the world because they can. And I wish I was 23. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll I'll, I'll join you on that one. Uh, So where does that lead in terms of employment, in terms of what are the opportunities this group is going to have? Because it isn't necessarily on on the farm or with the grower. I mean, it might be. And then just in terms of some of the labor that's on the farm, I I assume there has to be kind of some upskilling there as well to operate equipment. What does that look like? Yeah, and I, I think that's and this is one of the big 
problems. You know, it's not just a question about having a robot. It's about the workforce, the skills, and all those sorts of things, the infrastructure, the 5G, if we need 5G and all that sort of stuff. So to tech itself won't do it. It's the whole, it's everything that needs to happen. And then skills of the workforce is a really, really, really key thing. And it's about digital skills, but it's also things like problem-solving skills and all those other sort of things that we all know about, but we don't really think about too much for ag sometimes. And uh, we've got to get that in. We've got to get that in the curriculum. We've got to get people thinking laterally and all those sort of things. And I guess the point is that you know, modern careers, they're so quick, aren't they? So you start a career and two years later, you're doing something completely different that you never anticipated. And then it's sort of training people to have that ability to actually you know, change and adapt very, very, very quickly. And that's a skill in its own right, I think. Well, I note in your background, you were a senior lecturer in fresh produce. So given, given your comments earlier about attracting new students in, into the game, is that a class you could still teach? And no. You, <laughs> you wouldn't want to listen to it, Dennis. <laughs> well, it, it does seem to me that same group would benefit from uh, learning about the farm itself. So that, yeah. I mean, that's kind of one of the... The tricks yeah. we, uh, we have to continue to learn how to master yeah. here. How do we connect the two? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think part of my job is because um, I'm from an ag background. My father was a produce farmer. So I'm very much from that ag background. And then what I try and do is then try and work with ag, find big problems in ag, and then communicate that to lots of other people, engineers, data sciences, digital people. So, you know, it's that communication challenge, which is really important. It's really recognizing those big ag problems. And then it's the ability to put teams together to solve them. You've then got to then inspire those teams to get behind these problems to try and solve them. So my role is sort of in, interface in that uh, in that mix. We've seen uh, a fair amount of you this year in the States, which is terrific. And you're going to be back. Talk a little bit about your observations about the U.S. market and just kind of what you've seen and some general thoughts. And then the other thing is, you know, I often tell people ag tech's a global game. We have our friends in the U.K., New Zealand, Australia. Israel, the Netherlands, what part of the world really, uh, you know, when you go back home, going, that was impressive. So talk a little bit about the States and then what impresses you just in general about ag tech, who do you think's moving forward, making a lot of progress, that type of thing? Yeah, I, I think the, the real thing that impressed me in the US, just the scale, it's bigger environment. The farm standards are excellent from what I've seen in California, in uh, Arizona, Yuma, absolutely fantastic, world-class production systems on a world-class scale but the problems and opportunities are the same actually just on a bigger scale in california as they are in the uk as they are in in the netherlands so you know even the genetics you take broccoli very conserved there's not a lot of variance in genetics strawberries not a lot of variance in genetics these days because a lot of it's globalized so it's very very easy to go from one country to another and transfer tech from one to another and particularly the US, common languages common standards and systems and all that's very 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 comfortable place to operate now the problem in ag tech is actually we think there's a lot of practitioners but there are not a lot of practitioners and it's actually quite a relatively small community and even the startup community in ag tech it's not massive they're there there's some really good companies out there but not huge companies and so my perception of it, the key thing is what we've got to try and do is get all those people as much as they possibly can. You've got to respect the commercial IP protection, all that sort of stuff. But we need to get that community defragmented, get them working together a bit more. And we need a few successes. So we need a few of those companies to really, really start to sort of scale and scale as quickly as we possibly can. And that will breed more success. But at the moment, lots of people across the world 
you've just got to get them working together a bit better. And then I think that's that's going to be the next step in actually taking this tech on farms, getting it adopted and making a difference to the farmer. And that's where we're at. So California particularly is very interesting because you've got that community of startups, investors, farmers. It's a lovely community. It's probably the biggest community I know in the world at the moment in terms of that, that scale. But no one in the world, I think at the moment, is, I wouldn't say anywhere is leading. There's lots of really good bits. And we just got to join it all up if we can. Candice, as we uh, get ready to wrap up here, any final thoughts and questions from you? I just think maybe highlight one milestone or success or achievement within automation that you've witnessed recently that you are really proud of or think is a great milestone for the industry. Uh, I think the biggest milestone we had this year was what Saga Robotics did, where we treated a whole uh, strawberry farm. It's about 35 hectares, so it's about 90 acres of uh, strawberry. And uh, we applied that with UVC. And that was the world's first 13,000 kilometers of autonomy. And uh, it had a real, real action. And hopefully that will help that company scale. Uh, yeah. and, that's, and that's years of work. And that's the autonomy stack that we developed with Saga. It's got some of the University of Oxford tech in there. So there, there's all sorts of bits of tech that's been amalgamated to make that happen. So I think that was a terrific milestone in robotics. Awesome. And do you know, how is that technology, when you think about scaling, are those trials already taking place in the US yeah. as well? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I think there's a Saga Inc. And so they, I think they're looking at software, but I think they're looking at wine and all sorts of opportunities. So you know, I wish them the very, very best. So, Same. Yeah. Well, people often do look at wine when they head towards California. That's that's uh, <laughs> that's for sure. Well, let me let me give you one last question, and then you know I'm, I'm thinking back to exactly how you phrased you know when your appearance at the Oxford Union was over. We we don't want to stand between you. I know you're not heading out to the pub, but we want to make sure you you can have that beer. You you, you know you mentioned this need, and I think it's really important and not always appreciated to the degree it should be, you know, and you've made a case for it, the, the absolute necessity of working together and collaborating and creating scale. And I, I frankly think we've got to rely on the tech people to understand why we need to do that in ag. So just, uh, you know, last question and kind of off the cuff, how would you go about doing that, knowing that everybody tends to be a, a little protective of what they're doing? Any thoughts on how you go about that? It's really hard. I think the issue is you, you do see a number of failures, unfortunately. And you, often the reason they fail is they're just, they're not big enough. They don't have the diversity of skills within the team, or they're a little bit too secretive. And people sort of people think they've got something which is really, really important when, when actually it's probably not that important. And if they'd actually shared a bit, they would grow more. And they, it's a very hard thing, isn't it? Because it's this human instinct to compete. And it's, what you really want them to do is collaborate and it's a very hard thing but then you look at the software industry and all those sorts of things and a lot of that you know you look at you know the apple network it's growing because of that sort of it's a collaborate you know there's lots of collaboration there's sharing going on and so you've got to hope that we can create success in ag tech that creates leaders but you've got to then help people look beyond ag tech to the bigger tech community to say well actually you know, the world's moving, it's slightly different now. And, uh, you know, you might, it doesn't need to be for everybody. So some people, yeah, do it yourself. But a lot of people, particularly small startups, need to collaborate and then on you go. And then I think if you collaborate, you then got those great relationships with growers, farmers, it's co-created, you need tech that's created on farm. And, uh, and that's another form of collaboration. And that's the recipe for success. 
Well, I'm not sure if you're still offering your uh, course on uh, fre fresh produce, but I would certainly sign up for your outlook on the future course. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, Candace, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I think, I think Simon was as advertised. We had a, a terrific conversation, and I don't know about you, but I learned a lot. It's been great. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, and Absolutely. Simon, I know, I know you uh, stayed with us after five. We cut into your evening. We, we appreciate that. You know, occasionally, uh, Candace and I date ourselves we probably wouldn't have been as willing to do it ourselves tonight because we we've got the we've got the ncaa championship game for football so you know okay. so, yeah <laughs> so we we don't have to worry about missing that but uh we we really appreciate your uh your time and your insights and uh certainly look forward to seeing more of you in the u.s and california and arizona this year looking forward to it looking forward to arizona particularly it's gonna be a fantastic visit that one will be we'll i'll look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks thank thanks so much for your time and your insights we sure appreciate it candace let's do it again next week we shall indeed all right thanks candace and thanks everyone and we'll see you soon on another episode of voices of the valley thanks for listening to the voices of the valley podcast brought to you today by reedley college to learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in Ag Technology, Food Safety, and Plant Science, you can visit ReedleyCollege.edu.